Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. Hello, and welcome to HivriaCast. I am super excited. I say that every time with every person, and I feel like maybe I'm diminishing the power of that. But, um, but I am super excited, is the truth. I, maybe I'm just super excited every time. Um, but <laughs> it sounds like you want to talk about how excited you are. I, I haven't introduced you yet. That's true. Sorry. It's the truth. So I'm still thinking about this. So the guest usually doesn't speak until I introduce them. <laughs> so anyway, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Hivria Cast. Uh, I'm Aladna Harai. I'm so excited. We have my friend Jeremy Borovitz. Uh, with us, and welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me a lot. No problem. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah? Yeah, it's been an interesting last 20 minutes. We've just been <laughs> making, <laughs> making each other laugh, which right. has been... Uh, we're going to have to f- figure out how much of that we're going to save. Though, yeah, yeah. Because some of that's recorded. Director's cut. Director's cut, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Um, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Why don't, you, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you do? I don't really know. That's you know? true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kind of know. Yeah. You do. I said that as a joke at first, and then I realized I actually don't really know yeah. everything about you. So I don't know everything about me either. Okay. But I'm working on it. Well, we have an hour. Yeah, we have so an hour. So that's good. <laughs> Let's so do it. that should be enough time. <laughs> um, my name's Jeremy. I am studying to be a rabbi. Uh-huh. Um, I. And also run something called the Brooklyn Beit Midrash, uh-huh. which is an open, uh, pluralistic, non-denominational. We have like a lot of words that we made up, but basically it's a come as you are Beit Midrash mm-hmm. that has events about three to four times a month in different places in Brooklyn, in people's homes, um, in different communal spaces. Um, and we just, uh, we teach Torah to each other. Um, and our big thing is that it's local people uh, teaching to local people. Um, it's really like a for Brooklyn by Brooklyn, uh, endeavor. Wait, uh, wait, 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 one second. So what makes that creative? What makes that creative? Yeah. I need to make sure that you belong on the, that's totally true. Um, <laughs> I think if we're talking about like what I'm really about, like what I'm about, oh, more here than we go. A- yeah, what I'm about more than anything is I, I love bringing diverse groups of people and specifically diverse groups of Jews together. Um, I find it like an incredibly empowering experience. Uh, I find that I learn most about myself and my own Jewish identity in these spaces. And I guess when we were first, I, when I first started, uh, I, the Brooklyn Baby Drash was born out of a couple different places, but I started at a certain point just teaching a Talmud class out of my apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason was partially I wanted to like see if I could teach Talmud. It's been something I'd been learning for a while, but I wasn't sure um, if it was something I would be able to teach. Um, and also I wanted to see like, could I get like my hipster friends, um, from like my high school days and the, you know, the, the people I met at synagogue in, mm. together in a room talking about Jewish texts together. Has that happened? It has happened. Wow. What's, yeah. that, what's that been like for you? It's really interesting. People are confused sometimes <laughs> yeah. because they're coming from – I've even had like non-Jews come to my classes. Oh, wow. Um, like non-Jewish friends of mine. And it's very – you know, I try to teach in a way that it's accessible to everybody but also has depth for everybody who comes, mm. which is really difficult. Yeah. Um, that requires creativity. 
that requires creativity. But I think, <laughs> yeah, why am I creative? I don't know. I think I just like. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, but I, I it's just like it seems so powerful to me of like how can I, um, how can I, f- br- like I see the Talmud especially as like a text that all j- the entirety of the Jewish people hold ownership over. Um, it's like a part of a continuing conversation that stretches over hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and in the zoom in, in the moment, it seems like we're so completely removed from this. But I really believe that if we can, if we're able to zoom out on our lives and on the lives of our ancestors and on the lives of our choices, um, that we can see that they're a part of this connected web. And I feel like when I bring different types of people and different types of Jews together over these texts, that we're able to in some way piece together um, parts of this web. And I think through the understanding of that web, we're able to gain a better understanding of ourselves. That's, that's really interesting. I I literally just read an essay, I forgot who it was by, but it was this author who lived uh, through World War II and he was describing what the role of creativity, I think it was maybe of uh, of writing specifically, but he was definitely talking about creativity as well. Um, I don't know, it was storytelling. And he was, he was saying why it's so important um, during difficult times in history. And he said one of the things that he was discussing, I wish I could remember who it was, but um, one of the things he discussed was um, that, you know, this was during World War II, so it was obviously like a horrific time to be alive, really, to, and, to, and or at least to, even if you were safe, it was scary, you know. And he was saying how storytelling uh, has this power of helping people look at things like from a bigger picture and be able to see this is a stage that we're going through as humans like and and we're it's it's part of a grander story you know that we're all part of and so it's really interesting to hear that about Gomorrah like or about Talmud that I mean I just think that's so beautiful because I think that's like what's even more fascinating to me about that is that Talmud is like this fascinating document where it's this combination of law and storytelling and crazy weird ideas and you know all these sorts of things it's like everything and um yeah I think that's really cool like this and this idea of how when you delve into it at first it feels like you're really within it but then you have this opportunity to go outwards as well I actually, I start, uh, when I started teaching my Talmud class, mm. I began teaching rabbinic biographies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I would call to get their different agudic or folkloric tales of the, different, of the famous rabbis in the Talmud, and in the, mostly in the era of the Mishnah, but a couple mm. in the era of the Gemara as well. And mm. uh, I think for me, that, it was so interesting to think about, how, like, how are these people's lives being expressed to us? Mm. Um, because like, okay, we know very little, like we'll know in, even in like some of the most like Rabbi Akiva, like Mm -hmm. maybe there's, you know, a couple hundred texts giving us different elements of narrative of his life. And that would be like the maximum. Mm -hmm. For the most part, we know very little about these people's lives. There's this one rabbi, Rabbi Elazar Ben Arach, Mm -hmm. um, who is named as one of the top students of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. And according to some traditions, the best student of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, and there's like maybe 15 texts, not only in the Talmud and in Midrash and uh, in like all in Brightas and the Tosefta and like all Talmudic era texts. We maybe have 15 different sources that talk about this guy's life. Mm. And it's like, how can we take like, what are they conveying to us in these 15 sources? Mm. What, what, what are they, what picture are they trying to give? And wh- why is that picture important? Why was that message so important that it had to be preserved? 
Like, this is one guy. There were lots of other people, I'm sure, who we never even heard about. So why, what's in this story that we need to take with us? Is there any, like, general lesson that you feel like you learned from, from looking at it from that perspective? Like, why it's, why, why, well, like, why do they even do it? If it's so sparse, what's the point of it in the, in the first place? I mean, Elazar ben Arach is a great example because he's seen as this, like, great Torah scholar. Mm-hmm. And then when Yochanan ben Zakkai dies, Yochanan ben Zakkai, like, first off, the Mishnah is born out of tragedy. So, mm-hmm. like, you're talking about stories in the time of tragedy. The Mishnah is born out of tragedy. It's born out of, like, the destruction of the temple and then the Bar Kokhba revolt um, are, like, the two formative moments of the Mishnah. Um, the, the destruction of the temple leads the rabbis to create the first real academy at Yavne, um, uh, or, you know, Talmudic academy at Yavne. And then, um, the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, sort of sparks a, a generation that will say, we have to record these ideas. Um, this can't just exist in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Yochanan, Yochanan ben Zakkai sort of forms the academy at Yavne out of the destruction of the temple, um, and uh, when he dies, Elazar ben Arach um, decides he's going to go off to this place, Diomset, uh, the place of warm waters, mm. um, while all the other sages um, are staying either in Yavna or in Lod. It depends on which text you're referring to, or I'm just not remembering correctly. <laughs> um, but they're all staying in, in Lod in one place mm-hmm. or in Lida. Um, and he goes off to Diomset and he forgets all his Torah. Mm. He goes away to this beautiful place, to the spot town, the Hawaii of his day, mm-hmm. you know, as far as he knew, and he forgets all his Torah. Mm. And there's different versions of the story. And in some versions of the story, he wants to go back to them and doesn't. Uh, and, uh, and in other versions, they eventually come to him and they ask him his Torah. And he can't remember even the simplest thing they say is, which bread is better to eat, wheat bread or barley bread? And he says, I can't remember. And it's like, we bread. It's like a simple answer. It's an answer like a 12-year-old yeshiva bacher uh, would know that wheat is the highest level. And he can't remember it. And it's like, I take from that, it's like, we can't isolate ourselves. Like, I definitely have the urge sometimes, I'm like, I'm going to pick up everything. I'm going to move to the middle of nowhere. (laughs) uh, And I'm going to, you know, just like completely isolate. But we can't do that as Jews. We cannot, uh, like, I think... People can't function alone, and all the more so a Jew can't function alone. That's one of the things, like, that's what I always found fascinating about, like, the structure of Jewish life, or, I mean, halachic uh, Jewish life in the sense of you have to have, you know, 10 people for a minute, and you have to be able to walk to your shul. Like, and it's, it's fascinating how as technology moves forward and we're able to travel further, that's something we still need, you know, and, like, just all these things, yeah, like it forces us to be communal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fascinating thing, you know, like I, because I also, I, I like, I remember once I read this because I'm, I'm into, I'm like semi into minimalism. I like, I, or I used to find it really fascinating. And I remember reading this article. And then you had kids and you're like, this is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, by default, a minimalist. <laughs> um, and what was he saying? Oh, yeah. So. I remember reading this article by these guys. I forget they had this. this it's a pretty popular blog, and they, it was by like these these group of guys that are minimalists, and they went and moved to like Montana because they they chose like a really cheap place to live so they could have a lot of land and but not have to own too much and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, that sounds amazing, you know. And then I was like, wait, <laughs> I can never do that, <laughs> you know, unless obviously I got you know ten families together and we did that or well, something. Well, that's the like dream. That. That's the dream. Yeah. 
I mean, that's that's and that's what's kind of happening in Israel, right? Like to a certain extent, they're, for sure, they're living that out. But I, I think even more so, there's this like idea that I call shtetl nostalgia, uh-huh. um, which so you is, think there's also like a cultural thing going. Yeah, on? Yeah, I think there's like a cultural thing going on that like people, a lot of people are craving that. Like mm. dozens and dozens of people I know have like talked about that idea. Let's just get a group of us and we'll go get land upstate and then we'll have a community. And it's like I don't know whether anyone's ever going to actually really <laughs> do it. I know some people are like kind of doing it a little bit, right? Um, but you know, there's like a lot of problems. Like, how does that become financially viable? Great question. Yeah. Then there's schooling. You yeah. Know, and stuff like lots that. of not, issues with yeah. it. But I think there's like an ethos in the air of like, right. um, like we want isolation in community. Right. That's really fascinating. You know, it's funny. Um, I realized like, you know, when you when you get used to like a certain place, you kind of take things for granted. And I think like living in Brooklyn. I started to take for granted some of the advantages of being around a crap load of Jews, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, you get used to, I also lived in Jerusalem, so it was like, you know, for a long time I had been getting used to being around a lot of Jews. And then I remember I went to visit, <laughs> I went to visit New Jersey, uh, the shul. And again, it's nothing about New Jersey. I love New Jersey for anyone that read my article where I mentioned New Jersey. But um, I'm from New Jersey, by the way. You're from New Jersey. Yeah. But so, uh, so you probably hate me now, right, because of that. Piece. Not now. I mean, no. I'll, you know. Oh, before. <laughs> yeah. right. um, so one of the things that struck me besides all these other, other stuff that I'd written about there was I remember um, telling my wife how like they were so welcoming at the shul, it really bothered me because I really just wanted to be lost in the back, you know, of the shul. Um, and I'm I'm one of those people. Like I want, ironically, by being in around all these Jews, it allows me a certain amount of anonymity, you know. And I'm always scared. Also, of I want to be able to leave my shul too. Like that's mm-hmm. because I I had to do that before, and I realized how lucky I was that I could literally be like, I'm not going to that shul anymore. I'm going to this shul now, you know. Um, which is how we met. Yeah, um, we met because I would come over to you and bother you, <laughs> you were while you were trying to be alone in the corner in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's true. Um, it's but true. in my defense, but I wasn't trying to be welcoming. I was mostly making wisecracks. That's true. Yeah. That's probably why I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I like to test out my new material at school. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> it's a good... good uh, that's a good. good. You know, but I feel like I'm going in tangents, but I'm, what am I saying? I'm no, saying... I think we're talking about... We're talking. We're, I think we are talking about the uh-huh. same thing, which is the the place of like the the... I think for a lot of us, we best express our creativity when we're in private, but we really can't fully really realize our creativity right. in private. Right. Um, it's There's just this like constant dynamic. Between yeah. The two. Like I, if I paint it, the most beautiful painting in the world and no one ever gets to see it, like for some people that's art. For me, that's a wasted opportunity to bring people together and like really create something Right. Beautiful. You are like very on the communal side. Like yeah. In, in a sense. I mean, that's, I mean like, I appreci- that's how you express your creativity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I appreciate my individuality, but I don't know how to right. express my creativity as an individual. It feels, it feels so small time for me. Like I used, I used to write a lot. Yeah. Um, this is not to denigrate anyone who is uh, creative on their lonesome, but it's like, I, um, I used to write a lot and it is, um, and I was like, uh, I was living in Ukraine. I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I was like having this blog and I was getting all this like, you know, a lot of people were reading my blog and I was like thinking about all these things and I started living my life for my blog. And then I'm like, oh my God, I have two years where I'm living in a Ukrainian village mm-hmm. and I have the opportunity to like seize this experience for what it is or I can like blog about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't feel like I could do both. Um, and I actually deleted uh, my entire blog from my hard drive, and I burned. I physically burned a copy. Are you serious? Um, I actually went to Kiev to get a printer, 
and I print, and I printed out 200 pages at a print shop in Kiev, and then I went back to my village and I made a fire and I burned it. It you was burned at, a blog. I think that's the only time in history a blog has been yeah, burned. That's, I think it still exists somewhere. If you <laughs> Google it, I don't think I did a very good job. You have to go to the server, Amazon yeah. servers, and or like, like it's probably on Google. I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but I like the physically burning of the copy was important to me. Why is um, that? It allowed me to it like freed me from it. You know, like it allowed me to simply exist in the space I was in. And it was around that time that I actually started becoming more religious or more observant, I should say. Actually, both. Really? Do you feel like there's a connection? Oh, 100%. I mean, I was not, my father's a reform rabbi. Mm -hmm. Um, I was raised in like a traditional reform household. I went to conservative day school. You were like a super from reform person? Yeah, I was like the frumest reform kid on the block. (laughs) Got it. Um... And, and then like I went to college and I was like involved in whatever in Hillel, but I was not like observant by any sense of the word. Um, you know, I would like go to Shabbat dinner or something like that. Right. And then when I was living alone in a Ukrainian village with no Jews around, um, 600 people living in the village, I like started becoming observant. Um, and I felt like. What I, brought that on? Like what? Oh man, that's a story. Uh, um, okay, we have uh, 43 minutes. <laughs> All right, we can probably get it done. Um, I was living in this village, and uh, well, we've talked about Uman before. Oh, right, we did talk yeah. about it. Yeah, so I went. Um, I don't think the listeners have, but. Yeah, so the. <laughs> for those of you who don't know about Uman, <laughs> um, it's the, where Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav is buried. And uh, when I was first place, being placed um, in my Peace Corps village, what happens is I, I moved to Ukraine and. Uh, uh, we were, um, you know, I was living like with this woman for three months um, at, during like a training process, like outside of Kiev. And then they had an interview with me, like, where do you want to go? And I was like, I want to go to like a village. Like I want to really feel the shtetl. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I wouldn't mind being close to like a Jewish community. And I knew that like the major cities that Jewish communities is like, so that I could go visit on major holidays. And so they sent me to a village that was near Uman because wow. they're like a, they're like great people, but they're like a bunch of Ukrainians who, for them, there's no difference between like a Jewish community and what happens in Uman. <laughs> and just to be clear, what happens in Uman is not a Jewish community. Um, and so I went to Uman for Rosh Hashanah, and I had the worst Rosh Hashanah of my life. I was like ready to throw away my Judaism. I saw absolutely terrible things being done. I had like. Hasidim asking me if there were teenage girls I could introduce them to. I saw Hasidim buying drugs on the street. I, I literally saw one person defecating on a house. Um, and I'm not going to deny that, like, there's a lot of problems going on there and that, like, the Ukrainian – there's a complicated history between Ukrainians and Jews um, or that, like, the Ukrainians benefit incredibly financially from what – from the Jewish tourism in Uman. Um, but – Uman is a mob town, completely run by the mob. Um, and we, as Jewish people, are partially responsible for that. Um, and I saw a lot of that. And in that moment, I felt more kinship with the Ukrainians than the Jews. And that blew my mind. Because I'm not Ukrainian. I'm, I'm Jewish. Like, that's who I am. That's how I was raised. Like, this is everything I know about me. And it's like, the, who are these foreigners? And I felt... I felt so lost and I, I really thought, I'm like, well, maybe I'm just not really Jewish. Maybe that's just not something that's a part of me because how can I feel so distant from them? Uh, and I was really, really confused. And uh, then about a week 
late or two weeks later during Sukkot, I got a call from some guy. His name was Piotr. And Piotr had gotten my name from this guy, Martin Horowitz, who used to work for the American Jewish World Service. Because um, he had heard through like the Jewish parent grapevine that some <laughs> son of a rabbi was wandering around the Ukrainian wilderness. And Piotr said, I live in Korsun. It's this small town not far away. Uh, and there's this other town, Zvenahorotka. And in Zvenahorotka, there's a synagogue. And we're gathering there on Simchas Torah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't actually on Simchas Torah. It was like two days. It was like the Sunday after Simchas Torah. Um, but you'll understand why when you – when I understood why when I walked in and – once a year on Simchus Torah, there are all these small towns in Cherkasy Oblast in Ukraine. It's the, it's the sort of uh, state just below, just south of Kiev. Um, and there are all these small towns. And once a year on Simchus Torah, they gather in the one pre-war synagogue in the region. The only one they were able to reclaim from the government. And it's like 120 people from like eight or nine different small towns. Towns of like 10, 20, 30,000 people. The last remnants of former shtetls. And they gather together once a year on Simchus Torah. And I get there and I walk in. My mind is blown. They're like, there's just these people walking around, like wearing, they're like draping taluses over their head and greeting each other, shalom, shalom, in the middle of this like, you know, pretty nondescript Ukrainian town of Zvenahorotka. And they like start doing this like presentation and a little service. And then there was one woman who knew how to read Torah and she was really struggling. She's like, I, I don't think I can read the Torah this year. And uh, I'm like, oh, well, I can read Torah. <laughs> you know, I wasn't even, like, thinking when I said it. And they're like, really? Will you read the Torah for us? And I read the Torah for them. And uh, I read the Vizot Bracha. And then as we were rolling it, I, like, said something about Simchus Torah and about how, like, sometimes ends seems like ends, but really they're only beginnings. And I realized I'm talking about this in a place where, like, the Nazis almost destroyed the Jewish community. Um, by the way, I'm doing all this in Ukrainian, which was incredibly um, <laughs> impressive at the time because I'd only been in the country like six months. Um, and then they're like, oh, these, th- this, this boy, he, he, his grandmother's Jewish. He never had a bar mitzvah. So I like called him up to be Chatan Breshit. Wow. Um, and he like said his, he said his, read the Aliyah and he gave his bar mitzvah and he had his bar mitzvah and I, uh, and I read Breshit. <laughs> Bless you. Bless us all. <laughs> Amen. And uh, I, I like, I realized in that moment that I couldn't let the Hasidim in Uman decide what my Judaism was for me. Mm. It was in my hands. Like I too could read the Torah. Um, and that really started my exploration into um, what it meant to be, uh, for me to be a Jew and what it meant to be an observant Jew or a religious Jew. I feel like you, it's like such an amazing story, just because it feels like you went through the Balchuva process of like the, what's it called? The, um, when you become like cynical, you know, sort of like, oh, disillusionment. Uh-huh. You went through that and then you like immediately went back to the, like the ownership of it, like very quickly. <laughs> like Hashem really like guided you in that way. I think it's like really beautiful in a way. Yeah, it, yeah, it's interesting. I, it's funny though because when I got to Ukraine, when I flew to Ukraine on the second night of Pesach, mm-hmm. and it was the first time in my life that I wasn't at a seder on the second night of Pesach, um, on a, you know on any night of Pesach, um, and I like um, you know I, I I was never observant, but I like I went to a seder. I was always in my, you know I was with my parents, 
And uh, I'm on the plane. I like made a little seder on the plane with the this 79 year old Jewish man named Bernie, who was also going to be a <laughs> was Peace Corps volunteer. Sanders? No, it was not Sanders. <laughs> uh, oh, 79. I can't remember his name, Bernie. He was amazing, though. He ended up being in Berdicha for two years. Wow. Um, Crazy story. Um, But we we were on the plane, and then we, like, get to this. And, like, the first couple days, we're in this, like, campsite. And uh, it was all, you know, I, I, like, had a bunch of matzah, and I was, like, making trying to eat as best as I could. Like, I'd never, you know, broken Pesach. Like, I wasn't, you know, super – I wasn't from, but I'd never broken Pesach. And uh, then I get to, um, like, my host family – this woman, Natalia, who I was going to be living with the first three months while I did like my sort of Ukrainian ulpan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was five other volunteers in the town and we would get together for four hours a day to learn Ukrainian. And on the first night, they bring us together for like a dinner. And it was me and Natalia and one of the other Americans and her host mother. And we're all eating. And I only knew how to w- say one thing in Ukrainian at that point. Ya vegetarianets, mm-hmm. which is I'm a vegetarian. Because like... <laughs> I I became a vegetarian before I went to the Peace Corps, and it was probably like deep down a religious thing. But I, you know, I went, I went, I didn't wasn't interested in eating like trafe trafe, you know, like that was just like mm-hmm. I I felt like I needed to build up some sort of boundaries for myself going into this, and that was the one I decided to do. So I knew how to say that, and she just looked at me, <laughs> and she's like, "What's wrong with you? <laughs> like, why are you? What is that?" And then she took a piece of bread and she put it on my plate. And, like, she's just, like, hot, glopping food on my plate now. She's like, I have to find every non-meat item here <laughs> and give it to this kid. And then she gave me bread. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And she's like, why not? And I'm like, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, didn't, I only had, like, seven words in Ukrainian at this point. So I was like, no, me, bad. Um, and she's like, eat the bread. Eat the bread, Jeremy. <laughs> And so I took up the bread and I ate the piece of bread. And it was like the first and only time in my life I've ever eaten bread on Pesach. And uh, three weeks later, I walk into her home. um, And again, I was afraid of telling people I was Jewish because like it's Ukraine, like the land of pogroms. You know, this is like I was moving back. There was a sort of like internal rebellion against something I don't even know. So I three weeks later, I walk into her home and she's sitting at her kitchen table and my Tanakh that I brought with me is sitting on her table with her. And uh, she's like, come here. And I had like a couple more Ukrainian words at this point. And she's like, uh, do you know what this is? I'm like, yeah. She's like, it's yours. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, it's a Bible. I'm like, yeah. It's a Jewish Bible. I'm like, yeah. And in my <laughs> mind, I'm thinking, okay, if I run outside and call the embassy, they'll get a helicopter here to save me from the pogrom that's about to happen. Oh, my gosh. And she's like, you're Jewish. And I'm like, yeah. And then she takes a newspaper and she rolls it up. And she says, when you came here, it was Pesach and you ate bread. <laughs> and she starts hitting me. And I'm like, what is going on? Oh, my gosh. Why are on. you doing this? <laughs> and it turns out she's a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, who loved the Jews. She dated a Jewish man for like 10 years. She grew up in the Jewish district of Kiev and her best friend at work was Jewish. And so she knew exactly when Pesach was. And she was so mad at me for eating bread on on Pesach um, that she's like, you have to go to synagogue in Kiev. And at this point, Peace Corps had said we weren't allowed to go into Kiev. We like weren't ready yet. We'd only been in the country two or three weeks. We couldn't, you know, we weren't allowed to leave the place. And I'm like, no, no, Peace Corps says no. She's like, I don't care. God says yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so she brought me. Oh, my God. So she brought me to the synagogue in uh, Kiev, the Padol Synagogue. 
which is where she grew up. And uh, she walked me up to the to the front gate, and uh, she brought me up to this guy, and she's like, he ate bread on Pesach. He needs to be here for a while. And it was a Friday evening, about 45 minutes before Kabbalat Shabbat, before Mincha. Um, and so I walked in. I spent the next four hours hanging out with uh, my first introduction to the Jews of Kiev. Meanwhile, Natalia sat outside on a bench the whole time talking to her friend on the phone. Um, and then I walked out, and uh, from then on, I was hooked. I was like, wow. What? Why? You were hooked. I was, ho- I was hooked on, like, like I understood that my Jewish journey was a part of this experience. Like, before that, I thought, like, oh, I'm joining the Peace Corps because, like, I'm American and Obama. And, like, <laughs> I was super pumped about that Barack Obama had won the presidency. I had gone to the inauguration. I'm like, I'm inspired. I'm going to serve my country. Um, and it was at that moment that I realized that this was not an American experience for me. It was a Jewish experience. Wow. It's so interesting because so much of what you're describing is kind of this, in, like the interplay that you were talking about before of loneliness and connection, where like you had to go through an experience of loneliness, then you had to go through an experience of connection with people, then you had to go like, and then you have this story about, you know, loneliness in terms of your experience with Pesach, and then this woman essentially yelling at you to, and hitting, <laughs> hitting you. Yeah, to, a non-Jewish like, woman hit me for eating bread on Pesach. For eating bread and yeah. taking you and, like, forcing you to go to a community. You know, like, I mean, I don't know. There's something really special about that. This, like, I think, I think there's something, like, um, what's interesting to me, I always, like, I love thinking of parallels between creativity and spirituality because I think they're so much more connected than people realize. Um and for example, one of the big ones I think is the interplay between being alone or feeling mm. alone in a good way um, and and having like a support network and a community and these sorts of things. Um, but the thing is that I think a lot of times when it comes to religion and spirituality, we forget the the power of loneliness, like mm. the power of being, of having, and you know, another way to put it might be individuality or whatever, like, but just the the time taken to like step away and look at things from like my neshama's perspective as opposed to my community's perspective or whatever it happens to be. Obviously it depends on where you are, but like, I just think I, I think I, w- one of the things I think that's so beautiful about most Balchuva stories is like that there is that a period at, at some point where you're just like, you have to go through some period of loneliness because you're, you, you know, you're, you're, and, and and again, I'm saying it in a positive way of like that, that eagle eye view of what your life is and that sort of thing. And then you're thrust into the community and we always have to kind of, and then from then on out, we're always like doing that dance, you know? I'll be honest. I think we're all Balchuvas. And you, I could tell you didn't like that. I kept saying I, that. I, yeah. I like, I don't see, like, I both don't see myself as a Balchuva or I see everybody as a Balchuva. Right. Because like, I, I like, I am... As long I've always been trying, striving to be authentic to myself, yeah. and I think there's something deeply like religious and spiritual and Jewish about that. Um, and I also think I'm constantly growing, and we should all be constantly growing. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's so funny because I remember I used to write a lot of articles about being Balchuva, and I remember one in particular that kind of really resonated with people, which was called um, "The Balchuva's Job to Rebel Against the Orthodox World," and basically the idea being like that they have this 
like part of why they're called into the Orthodox world is that they have a, a unique perspective. So, um, but what was really interesting was how many from people contacted me, and they were like, you know, that this describes exactly my experience too, right? And like, and I at that at that point I was still not enmeshed enough in the in the, um, the Orthodox culture to really get that. I think, or I think, or at least no, I did. I wasn't enmeshed enough to feel like I could speak to that, you know. Um, so it's really interesting, like when people call me out on that, because I think it's it's actually it's, it's so true. I mean, like we're talking about the religious experience, not the Balshuva experience. I, I guess I think the Balshuva experience is a great microcosm of the experience that most of us need to go through as religious people. I think a lot of people don't. I think, like in a sense, I agree, but I also think that a lot of people don't embrace that aspect of themselves you know what i'm saying yeah for yeah i 100 percent. i also think it's uh comes back to what we were talking about before elazar ben arach mm. is described in pirkei avot as an overflowing wellspring and his sort of counter opposite is eliezer ben horkinus who is the cistern that doesn't lose a drop um and we need to be both we need both we need to both um catch everything in our tradition and hold it and preserve it and have the ability to create something new. If all we have is the Torah we've been given, then we're not living in the world that we are. Like we need to be creating Torah of our own. And it, 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 it's the Torah we've caught, but it has to be processed through us. Yeah. To me, that's, I feel like that to me is like really why I obsess over creativity is because I think that it's like what you're describing is essentially the creative aspect of Judaism. I think like where we need to be able to tap into these newer, not newer, I don't know what the right word is, but like we need to be able to imagine a Judaism that's beyond what we've experienced you know, and then to try to make that a reality. Um, and that, I don't think that just goes for communal leaders. I think it's like an individual thing as well. Like, um, and I think that we, I think we're entering an age where people are starting to understand that that's important because for so long, I think we've been so traumatized over the last 70 years or whatever that, and, and obviously over the course of even before that, like that where, the whole obsession has become preserving, mm -hmm. right? Like preserving, mm -hmm. preserving, preserving. And we're seeing the negative effects of obsessing over pres preservation and logic and left brain thinking, however you want to put it. But in terms of like memory, we're obsessed with memory. And, um, and, then, and then we see like there's all these Jews leaving or all these Jews disconnecting. And I'm not talking about leaving Orthodox or anything, but I'm talking about just not feeling engaged with it, you know, and ugh, that's such a buzzword, but not feeling <laughs> um, like they own it, like it's theirs, you know, like the way that you described your experience when you were uh, experiencing Simchas Torah, like where it was yours. Yeah. You know, we've created too many consumers of Jewish life. We need producers. Consumers. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Like Judaism was meant to be produced by us, not to be bought and paid for. Um, and we're in a culture of consumerism, which yeah. is a problem. We're really fighting against the culture here. The culture of the time is telling us just sit back in your chair and dial up the Judaism you want on your phone, whether that is, 
you know, not it, it, like, and, and you don't have to do anything. Um, and like, I'm not even talking about like from versus not from, I'm talking about like, are you going to be an active creator of your Jewish life or not? Are you going to like sit, take hold of and cr- build the community you want? Or are you going to sit back and, and just not be a part of it? Um, and the truth is, it's a, it takes a balance. It's like you, you like you are creating this community in Chavria, and you're sitting at the back of the shul because you understand that like the balance needs to be there. But you need to be. We all need to be both producers and consumers. Yeah, that's really interesting. I always joke with Rivka, my wife, that like if I wasn't running Hebrea, like I would never go to events, I would never do anything, <laughs> and yet I'm like trying to bring people together, you know. But it's um. But yeah, I mean, like, there's that. I, I I think there's that that realization that we have. I mean, one of the things that to me has been powerful about about doing that has been, like, it's just I I, I think it's almost like beyond belief to me to see something that I dreamed of, even in a mic a very microcosmic way, coming into being, like when. If like, and I remember this, like I got addicted to this feeling. Ironically, like you talked about burning your blog, but for me, when I first started writing my blog, and especially once I started getting personal about it, um, I remember, like for me, comments and whatever they affect things. But I remember when I got per- like the first time I got like a personal email from someone being like, "Your what you're writing like spoke to me so deeply mm-hmm. and affected me." And I mentioned this in the podcast with your Chavid, but I think like. You know, when when that happened, it was like, in my mind, I was just trying to bring out that inner loneliness and share it with the world. And so when someone else resonated with that, I, was, I realized, oh my gosh, like, there's other lonely people and we can create a community of lonely people. <laughs> it sounds so depressing, but it's actually, I think it's like, it was, I'm, I'm, one of my, I'm trying to think about like what I'm really trying to say. I think like essentially... Um, when we really embrace this idea that Judaism can reach like unimaginably high heights, that frees us up in, in mm. so many ways. We're so restricted in general, but when we allow ourselves to go that direction, then, then, like I'm saying, then that allow it gives us this freedom to to really live out our own personal Judaism in a way that's, that transforms our lives, you know? Mm -hmm. We were talking yesterday a lot about the idea of the home and that everyone's built, you know, home-based Judaism is very in right now. Um, And like my wife, Rebecca and I are involved in the base movement and we do this project based Berlin in Germany. Um, And when we talk to people in Germany about our project, like they're naturally suspicious of outsiders um, and one of the things we say is we are not trying to build another shul. Um, we have a thesis, and that thesis is strong Jewish homes build strong Jewish communities. Like we don't like we don't just want to host people in our home. We want people to bring it into their own homes. Um, and there's like such a power in <clears throat> there's such a power in the ability of like um, I think we, the reason the home thing is so um, popular right now and in inviting people to share in your home life is because you want, um, you want them to take a part of that to their own home. 
When someone walks into a synagogue or a big communal space, it can sometimes seem so distant and so far detached. But when you walk in and you see you're sitting on someone's couch in their living room, you know, it's like, oh, this is this is not so far from where I am. There's like a relatability factor there, um, which inherently makes you feel a little less alone. Yeah. That's interesting. Like, I mean, so much of what you're describing is also like you were talking about not feeling alone, but we're also talking about giving people the ability to imagine what their lives could be like, mm. you know, like when you're showing like in a shul, it's always going to be that's. It's always going to be like an aspect of your life that's already lived. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and so you can change your shul. Like how I was talking about, like I want to change my shul if I need to. You know, I can't. Tra- I can't. I mean, you'd have to invest a lot to transform your shul. And you know, but I'm saying to transform your own life, it would be within your home, right? So like, you know, it's really interesting. It's like I run these creative fabrings, right? And it's fascinating to me to have people in my home. And see, I, I swear, I don't, I don't know if it's conscious or what, but I swear that I see people think like thinking themselves, oh my gosh, my home can be this vibrant like place of art. Like my wife, mm. like she took out, um, like during, in the middle of one of the creative frames, she just brought out like a canvas and started painting like spontaneously, you know. And we have this person, Elki Sudin, who's married to Saul Sudin. They're both incredibly creative, beautiful people. Saul was on the. Uh, podcast before and and she will start drawing people at the table and 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 like there'll be uh, Laura Melnikov she brings a cello and plays for us like and it's like I mean even I obviously didn't imagine someone playing cello in my home but like and that's what's so beautiful about it is this idea like imagine a cello and this like your home can be like that your home can be for me, that's like a dream, like where we're talking about God and we're like playing, there's someone playing cello and they're like, to me, that's like Mashiach, you know? Um, it's also for a Jewish world that feels increasingly territorial. There's something beautiful about saying this space that I live in, it's not only mine. No. You know, there's like a, a, a kibbutzish element that I think is very Jewish of like, I don't own any of this. And the truth is if we're really deeply in the moments when we're really deeply connected to Hashem, I feel no ownership over anything. Yeah. Like, what is what, like, what are these clothes? What is this house? What is this space? Are we bringing God in here? If so, then the physical things mean nothing. And striving for a place where the physical things mean nothing, um, I think it's a lot easier in a when you you are bearing everything you have and saying. Come, take. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's it's funny to me because, again, like this idea like of inviting people into my home. I remember someone in the Havria blogger group was asking, she asked something like, you know, what was like your favorite experience hosting people or, or being hosted or something? And I was like, I was like, why would I ever want to host someone for job? It's like, I don't <laughs> get it, you know? Um, because maybe just, I think of it in such a formal circ- like yeah. way of thinking. Um, but the point being like that in my head by default, again, like I don't want that. But then when I'm living this like specific kind out, it's all of a sudden it's like, I am, this is exactly what I want. And all of a sudden, like you're saying, everything becomes nullified in a sense. All those, Physical, my physical need to be this lonely <laughs> person um, is like trumped by this 
like light that I feel when I'm doing this. Like, and it's, 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 to me, it's bizarre in a, in a beautiful way. Like this, that all of a sudden I, I'm cool with it and I'm excited for it. I'm excited for people to come into my house. Like that's insane to me. Like, <laughs> you know, but then I don't know. It's biz- And it was it, one of the things that I always found fascinating about Chabad. Uh, when I started out, I remember I'm, one of the shluchim that influenced me when I was, I was like visiting Chicago briefly before, because that's where I'm from. Went to, I visited briefly before I went to Israel for yeshiva. So it's before I was from, but I remember there was this Chabad rabbi who I really connected with. And I remember like thinking, wow, he seems like a naturally super shy person. Like he he's very like quiet and, and all these things, but he would, he like tracked miles to get me a, like, I don't know if he literally walked, but he like, he went somewhere far to get me a, a sitter because I mentioned him, I didn't have a sitter and he brought it to me and like, mm. and, and, and we sat down and like, he sat down and, and spoke with me and all these things. And I, and I started to understand like this person had, and I've, and I've noticed, especially since I started to connect with other shluchim over the years that like, there's no personality type really that defines a shliach in Chabad because everyone is in theory a potential shliach. You know, they're all sent there to put on to fill in on people, to put to fill in on people. They're all sent to to be doing the work that that like the Rebbe gave them to do. And so what's fascinating to me about that is that for a person who really and what what fascinated me about him in particular was that it was so clear that he was so personally and deeply invested in the mission that whatever shyness he may have had before he started this like, was just not an issue for him. Like, I mean, it might be, like, something he struggles with in general or something, I don't know. But, like, I think it, I could tell how much he enjoyed and cared uh, about the experience of connecting with me, you know, which was, it was so fascinating. But now I'm, like, starting to get it, you know, from my own perspective. It's also, that's who you are through your writing. Like, you, I've spoken to you in person, and I've read a lot of the things you write, and... <laughs> It's not that you're like two completely different people, but you are like much, your shlichus really comes out in your writing. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I, yeah. And I think I feel similarly like I, I love hosting people in my home. It's like nothing <laughs> I love more. Right. And, We're like uh, complete opposites. Yeah. I and I come alive at the Shabbos table. Right. Like I'm never more vibrant, more like um, just, I, it, it, it's just being at that table and having people at my table and making, giving me the opportunity to make them feel at home. Yeah. Um, nothing's more powerful to me than that. And I, like, I just come alive. I become a different type of person. Wow. And I think that like, really speaks to something like this concept that creativity is not limited to art. You know, when we, the, the thing that you're describing is like just living creatively, you know, and affecting others creatively. Yeah. I usually call it living thoughtfully, which is something I often fall short of. Right. Um, but How do you describe that? What, what, what do you describe as like thoughtfully? Um, I don't ever, I want to always be striving to be the most authentic version of myself mm-hmm. um, in whatever way that means. Um, and like that, that doesn't mean doing whatever I want because that's not me. I'm not a person who just does what I want. Um, I'm a person who lives within certain constraints and likes to put, push the boundaries of those constraints. Um, and, and how can I be the best version of me? And it's like that intentionality forces me to live creatively because I don't believe that I'm a constant. 
Like I, I, like we're, we must be growing. I'm getting older. Like you know, my my gut is growing. My hair is falling <laughs> out more and more. Um, I found a white in my beard the other day, um, and it's like I must. If I'm getting, if my body is changing, why am I to assume that my soul isn't changing as well? Growing, developing. Yeah. So if I'm rushing after that. If I'm chasing my own soul, um, then I must always be doing something new. So interesting. You know, it's uh, one of the things I, I find interesting is that a lot of like Van Gogh and um, I'm trying to think Tolstoy, some of these people like the, some of the greatest artists. One of their biggest messages, especially the Romantics, like these sorts of that were very less in the ration, like rational in a sense, like who were very, um, very much focused on emotion first. They, mm-hmm. when it came to their art, one of the things that you hear expressed a lot is that honesty is like a prerequisite to mm-hmm. creativity in a sense, like where being sensitive to yourself and to you, like the self honesty is what I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like which what is what you're describing, like this, this authentic nature and all these things. And I think that's, I think the way you're describing it is really beautiful because it's like, it's not actually like, you know, because I'm obsessing over creativity for a lot of reasons. But I think what's interesting about the way you describe it is like, really what you're doing is trying to live the most honest and true version of yourself, right? So there's it's no... It's really hard. It's very hard. First of all, there's no possible way to do that without being logical because you need time. You need to be able to order your thoughts and yeah. think about these things, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we we tend not to realize that like logic as well is a, a way of thinking, but you also can't be truly yourself. That that you can't truly be an authentic version of yourself. If you're also not being creative. You're not being aware that I need to constantly change. I need to constantly grow. I need to do new things. I need to re-experience myself and my Judaism and all these things. Like, meaning to say that when you're truly facing yourself, then you're like I think there's no other option. In, as you just said yourself, like then to be creative because it's just a way of thinking. It's a way of of relating to the world, and that's why I think when we stifle that part of people or ourselves, like people wither. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a tragedy. It's just as much of a tragedy as when someone stifles their logic. You know, for different reasons. You know, but we need to think and feel at the same time, right? Like we cannot. Anytime we go too much in one or the other direction, right? Um, like. It becomes, yeah, and particularly becomes self-indulgent. And again, like, a part of my own, I need, like, I need to be alone sometimes to, like, chase myself. Um, And I need to be with people because that's my beacon. Otherwise, I can't tell how I've moved. Mm. Um, It's like... uh, uh, Yeah, it's the exact opposite experience that I have. I love that. Well, it's like in the movie The Aviator about Howard Hughes. I love that movie. Yeah, so he's like, they're trying to film the plane scene, the battle scene. And they're like, we can't see how fast the planes are going. And it's like, oh, we need to have clouds because it's only when you have something constant in the air that you can tell the speed at which you're passing by. That was such a hip rabbi thing to do right there. I by bringing that. in the aviator? That was great. Yeah, thank no, you. I mean, it was a beautiful analogy, and then, but it was also like with a movie. It was a very hip rabbi thing. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Um, most people don't call me hip or a rabbi, so I feel... <laughs> I'm just saying you're going in the right direction. <laughs> I'm, go- I'm on the derrick. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, that's, right. that's great. Um, yeah, that's great. This idea of a signpost, like that, 
we need those. And that's that's what's that's interesting because like I spend an hour a day writing, and it's like you were saying that you experience my shlichus through writing. So it's interesting because like I have again, like I'm saying, the opposite experience where for me when I like finish my hour of writing and I feel like, wow, I just said something like I've never said before. I've said something that was, I never, like, I finally got out what I'd been thinking and all these Mm. things. Then I'm like, that to me is like the signpost, you know, of Hmm. realization. And I often get lost when it comes to being around other people and why, like, I can get intoxicated by it or different things like that, or I can get fearful of it. And, And so there's that. I just think, my point being, I think like, we all we all need uh, that's this authentic aspect that is so important of realizing what helps us make sense of the world you know but i i think but we need both you know i'm not denying that also. I, I also like you also have like an amazing wife and three great kids mm-hmm. and like a family um who you know your i i have to assume as like a as a as another non balchuva like yourself um <laughs> that you know uh, part of my like religious journey is held in comparison to how I was raised um, and to who my parents are. Um, there are signposts all around us, and I think a part of it is definitely in your writing. And it's like, how am I growing as a you know? How am I how how is my my thinking process and my writing process changing me? And and there's a signpost there, and there's also a signpost in like you know, looking at your parents and there's a signpost in like looking at your daughter and being like, wow, I remember when she was born and now she's like a talking, thinking person who, you know, is slowly becoming smarter than me. That's actually, yeah, I love that. That's so true. And it's so funny because I think, especially in in the Jewish world, there's these also specific markers that we kind of share communally, like, like the education that we choose for our kids and these sorts of things. Like when you, that was when I had to like really face what kind of Judaism I wanted to live when when I you know, was having to choose, like, shul is is one thing, but then to, ch- to put your kids' lives' future in the hands mm-hmm. of other people is, like, that's when you're, a lot of illusions of, like, the kind of Jew you want to be kind of disappear. Yeah. Because, bef- you know, back in the day, it would have been, like, I remember, actually, when I got married, I think it was, like, we had some sort of party there before after the wedding with, with, with just, like, some friends, and we had this friend who was another non-Balchuva, and I was, and she... You know, I, I was kind of like very much at the beginning of my process when this um, happened, and I forgot how this conversation started. But for some reason, someone brought up this idea of like, what kind of school you're going to send your kids to, or something like that. And I was like, well, I imagine that you know I'll try to send them to the like from a school because I that's the direction I'm trying to go in. You know, and she's like, I remember she gave me this knowing nod that annoyed me so much at the time. Where she was like, I, you know, you might change your mind about that when you get older, and uh, or when you have kids, and it was fascinating to me. Obviously, you know, fromist in itself is a problematic term, but like the idea of realizing, like for example, I wanted my kids to be exposed to reform uh, kids and like all these things, and thank God there's actually a school that's orthodox that has that in Crown Heights or near Crown Heights, which is amazes me um but my point being again like there's the when we're i, I love this idea that yeah it life itself has its signposts not just you know and we miss it most of the time we like i it's like we go through our day and we just like we do not notice the things in the world and the people in the world who are screaming out to us begging us to see where where they are and where we are you know, people are screaming, like, no one is being seen right now. What do you mean by that? 
no, like we are, we are living in a world where we do not see each other. We do not hear each other. We are just, we're, we're like, it's all output and no input. Mm. You know, it's all, it's, it's almost, it's all cistern and no wellspring mm. or it's all wellspring and no cistern. I can't even tell half the time. <laughs> right. Um, but it's like, we are not, we are not catching what the other, what other people are throwing out there. Mm. I, uh, I have family members who are big supporters of the president, which is not a feeling I share. And yet they are my family and I can't change that. And like most of the world is just like, well, let's just put on the blinders and we'll keep walking the direction we walk. We're walking. And because we're not seeing each other, we're just going farther and farther apart. If we could truly look at each other and see how far apart we were drifting I I think we'd both have the instinct to reach out, but it, but we're so convinced that everyone's behind us. We're so convinced that like we are the trailblazers, we are building the path. But it's like we we need each other as our signposts. We need to see where we are in relation to the people around us. I I find myself very lucky that I have a lot of really good friends some of whom will listen to this podcast and will tell me how much of an idiot I sounded. Like, <laughs> Jeremy, you're so, like, oh, you sounded so arrogant. And you said, like, I know that. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful to have people in my life, including my wonderful wife, who <laughs> tell me when I'm an idiot. The first time Rebecca and I ever met, um, we, like, met at this conference and we went for a long walk afterwards. And we had this great conversation about Polish Jewry. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is the girl for me. And uh, I was going back to – we were in New York, but I was going back to Kiev and she was going to Jerusalem. And I'm like, we should, like, write letters to each other and, you know, be romantic. And she's like, that's a stupid idea. If we want to stay in touch, why don't we just Skype? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the girl I want to be with because all I want is for people to tell me how stupid my ideas are because otherwise how will I grow? And if I can't hear that, my ideas are just going to remain stupid. Wow. And you need people, you need people who will also say yes sometimes because constant no's <laughs> um, is just like I had one Jewish mother and that was, <laughs> that was enough of the constant no's. But the ability to hear the no and turn that into a different kind of yes, mm. like we've lost it. And we can only do it when we're really seeing people. It's actually part of why I love this podcast because it gives me a chance to like sit and just talk to someone for an hour. Mm -hmm. It's a very selfish thing, but I, I, I love it. Like, it's very interesting. Like, you know, it's one thing to like when we hang out at the hookah bar or something, right? But then there's another thing when we're like sitting down and having to really hear what the other person's life was like. And we have like this hour to, to do it, you know? This is easily then, the least amount of jokes we've ever told in I know, an hour right? speaking to each other. <laughs> Full disclosure, we started this podcast just laughing because we couldn't keep straight faces. Yeah. I mean, that's recorded. We might keep that. Okay, great, great. <laughs> so thank you for that one. We're going to have good contrast. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I love that. Um, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, how do we find out about Brooklyn Bait Midrash? Um, so uh, you can find Brooklyn Bait Midrash on Facebook mm -hmm. at... Brooklyn Bait Midrash, uh, or you can email us. We have an email address at brooklynbaitmidrash at gmail.com. Uh -huh. um, and if you're ever in Berlin, please look up Base Berlin, which you can also find on Facebook. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hivria Cast. 
I'm Aladna Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hevria.com or facebook.com slash mag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Oh, uh-huh.